Hello and welcome to an AWOL episode of Hardtack, episode 13, Israel Keys, Soldier, Serial Killer. I am your host Mike, formerly known as Spartan. I have chosen to really go AWOL and drop the moniker for professional reasons and because it just feels a bit more personal. So hello everyone, it is nice to meet you again. With me today is my co-host, say hello please. Hey everyone. So my name is Sam, formerly known as Walla. Um, I'm really excited for this episode of Hardtack, and I'm looking forward to using my real name too. Yeah, it's really good to have you back. Um, I did the, the past two episodes by myself, so um, how's everything been? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been pretty hectic, I'll, I'll tell you that, with uni and life and social life, all that crazy, but I'm glad to be back. Yeah, definitely good to have you back. Uh, quick update before we move on, Knight is no longer a part of the show. We appreciate their contributions and efforts to previous episodes. As you may have noticed, this episode is going to be different from our previous episodes. And it's going to be the first of its kind, though not the last. For those that may be unaware, AWOL is a military acronym, meaning absent without official leave. So we are going to follow suit. Do not worry, we will return to a focus on military history in episode 14. A listener who I will keep anonymous, though he is a dentist, and yes, you know who you are, asked if we would be doing any true crime episodes, and my initial thought, and I think Sam's initial thought when I brought it to the group was, this is a military history podcast, what the hell are you talking about? But I fell into the rabbit hole that is true crime about six months ago, thanks to my brother Zach. And I got curious, could we tie the two together? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, we fucking can. So for the first AWOL episode of Hardtack, we will be discussing the once soldier and serial killer, Israel Keys. And in the spirit of Halloween, let's get spooky. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your civvies, pour yourself a cold one, and prepare to go AWOL for this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Hardtack Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree listed in the episode description. You may also email us at, and this is a recent change, hardtackpod at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We very much appreciate it. 
Though it is stated in each episode and already has been for this one, I really want to reiterate that listener discretion is advised, and strongly so for this particular episode. Some of the material that you are about to hear is quite graphic in nature and may be triggering for some listeners. We will not go into overly descriptive detail concerning Keyes' crimes and will try to provide only information important to the narrative, both out of respect for the victims and to prevent glamorizing his actions. I also want to mention that there have been other episodes on Keyes in the past, one of which is very well known and deserves credit for the excellent episode they did on this monster. The Crime Junkie podcast, hosted by Ashley and Britt, released an episode on Israel Keys in May of 2019, and they did a phenomenal job. This is our attempt at trying something new and well outside of our usual area of research. Alright, so let's get into it. So, Israel Keys was born to John Jeffrey Keys and Heidi Hackinson on January 7, 1978 in Richmond, Utah about as far north as you can go in Utah towards the Idaho border and 96 miles north of Salt Lake City. With a population of about 2,800 residents, Richmond is only 3.5 square miles in total land area. However, Richmond does contribute to the production of one major snack food for the world. Goldfish crackers are produced at the Pepperidge Farm facility in the town which generates over 1 million cases of goldfish annually thank you richmond i guess for the goldfish <laughs> i who, as an australian who doesn't like never, goldfish well i've never heard of goldfish as an australian no. i am sorry I, it just sounds like you're talking about the animal <laughs> oh i tell you what i tell you what um mm-hmm. when i when i send you uh your care package with the hard tax stickers that we had produced mm-hmm. or uh made Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you some goldfish. I had no okay. idea you guys didn't have those in Australia. No. I mean, we right. might, but I've never seen them. Anyway. All right. You're going to get some. You're going to get some. <laughs> so Keys was the second child, having one older sister and seven younger siblings. Not long after Keys was born, his family moved to Washington State and his father bought some land. Raised Mormon, Keyes was homeschooled and periodically attended a Christian identity church. And without getting too much into that, Christian identity is usually practiced by individuals known to profess white supremacist ideologies, so it is best described as a theology based upon racial interpretations of Christianity. But we'll move on from that can of worms. Growing up, Keyes was known to carry a pistol habitually broke into houses to commit burglary, and started killing pet animals. So already we can see some of these uh, stereotypical identifiers often associated with serial killers. Key's family moved to Maine in the 90s where he broke from his family's religion and became a self-labeled atheist. And in response, his parents essentially kicked him out. A short time after... Keys enlisted in the United States Army. Yeah, so this was a little disturbing uh, to learn as an active duty uh, service member in the, in the United States Army, but it happens, right? Keys ended up back on the East Coast in 1998, and he joined the Army in New Jersey. Keys was assigned to Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, and promoted to the rank of Specialist. He never obtained an NCO rank, thankfully. Keys was stationed at Fort Lewis, now Joint Base Lewis-McChord, in Washington State, and later 
was stationed at Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas. I found this a little, I'm not going to say comical, but I found this a little ironic considering that uh, for most Americans we know that Fort Hood has been in the news quite frequently in the past five years for various issues to include murder. So, Keyes also did some training in Sinai, Egypt. This guy traveled all around the U.S., joined the Army, and was able to travel internationally. As we will come to find out, Keyes did even more traveling both in the U.S. and abroad after the Army. Keyes was honorably discharged from the United States Army in 2001 after having been arrested for a DUI in the state of Washington. He was awarded the Army Achievement Medal for Meritorious Service while serving as a gunner for his unit, though he was discharged for a DUI. Fast forward 10 years to 2011, a seemingly inconspicuous missing persons report, later linked to Keyes, falls upon the desks of investigators. Yeah, so on the 8th of June 2011, the Essex Police Department and Vermont released a missing persons report to the public in hopes of finding 50-year-old Bill Currier and his wife, 55-year-old Lorraine Currier. The couple was last seen around 5pm on the same day. They were officially reported missing by family members who were gravely concerned, along with co-workers, when the two didn't show up to work the following day on the 9th. Six days later, on the 15th, Essex Police Lieutenant Robin Holidwell told abcnews.com they weren't the kind of people who did not call in if they were going to miss work. He also stated, and I quote, they were very good about being at work. They didn't take a lot of time off, end quote. Bill worked as an animal care technician at the University of Vermont and Lorraine worked at the Fletcher Allen Healthcare Centre. So you can already tell by their occupation that Bill and Lorraine were good people, so you don't need to know them personally to understand that. So the following Friday, police found the courier's car abandoned in the parking lot of an apartment building, about a mile from their home. And further evidence gathered by police at their residence indicated that the couple had not left voluntarily. Making their disappearance even more suspicious, though, police found they had left behind medication that both Bill and Lorraine required daily. The investigation had few leads beyond this, though nothing substantial. It wasn't until after Keyes was arrested for the murder of an 18-year-old woman in Anchorage, Alaska, in 2012, almost one year later, that they were able to make progress in solving the courier's missing persons case. Within days of Keyes' confession to the murder of the Alaskan woman, he offered a confession on the disappearance of Bill and Lorraine, doing so in exchange for leniency in his dealings with prosecutors. According to an article written by the New York Post on the 2nd of June 2011, Keyes flew from Anchorage to Seattle, then to Chicago where he rented a car and began driving east. He intended to visit his brothers in Maine, but decided to make a stop in Indiana for a couple of days, then at an old farmhouse he owned in upstate New York. And from New York, Keyes headed to Burlington, Vermont. Keyes was in Burlington on June 8th. He left his hotel with a backpack of supplies and made a stop for further supplies which he unearthed from a cache he had buried two years prior. Keyes said that he had taken a five-gallon Home Depot bucket and filled it with zip ties, ammunition, guns and silencers, duct tape and Drano, which is essentially a household drain cleaner made from chemicals which he could use to accelerate human decomposition. This cache was just one of many he had buried all over the country. The, what, you know what's crazy is 
and doing the research, and I'm sure you stumbled across this, mm. he's had countless caches buried across the United States, a lot of which were used, as we'll yeah. come to find out later. But he offered to provide the locations of other caches that had been buried to prosecutors later on or investigators later on. A few were found, but many of them still remain undiscovered. I, I'd be really interested to know where he had put those other caches because, like, how far across the United States did he plant them? You know, like, did he bury them? Like, right. was it, like, in every state was there one or was it just a small portion, like, a small area of the state, like, on the east or west coast or whatever? Yeah, it, it's just a curious uh, discussion in and of itself. I mean, imagine finding one of those uh, even now. Oh, I know. It, I, I would be so, like, if I had no previous knowledge of keys, I would be so confused. Like, yeah. I mean, immediately I'd be like, because there's, like, guns and duct tape and stuff like that. I'm like, whoever buried this means business. Like, they want to hurt someone or, like. Yeah, but even now, being aware of keys, finding one, it, it, oh, the chill down the spine, right? But Oh, man, ugh. yeah. So he left his hotel and began wandering around Burlington, essentially on the hunt for his next victims. Just after midnight, he stumbled upon the courier's home at 8 Colbert Street. Approaching the house, he found the phone line and he cut it. And the home invasion was made that much simpler as the couriers did not have a, a home security system. He broke in through the attached garage and entered the house with relative ease. In an interrogation with FBI Special Agent Catherine Nelson and Jolene Godin, Keyes told investigators, and I quote, I decided I was going to look for a house with a couple in it. I was looking for a fairly easy way to get into the garage, and theirs was the first house I found that had all of those things. End quote. So th th this was all premeditated. I mean, it, he says it right there. It's premeditated murder. He buried the cash, he dug up the cash, and he knew exactly what he was looking for. But he didn't know he was going for the, the couriers, exactly. He right. was just looking for the easiest house he could get into and just go from there. Yeah, yeah. After Keyes entered the house, he immediately restrained Bill and Lorraine and held them at gunpoint. He bombarded them with the type of questions you would expect in a home burglary. He asked stuff like, do you have a safe, guns, prescription drugs, where's your jewellery, ATM card, etc. But after about 15 minutes, he marched the couriers to their garage, restrained them in their car, and drove away from the house. The couriers were driven to an abandoned farmhouse that their abductor had scoped out earlier. Keyes attacked Lorraine first and restrained her in an upstairs bedroom. Bill was restrained downstairs, though the couriers did not go down without a fight. Immediately after Bill was restrained, Keyes headed for the stairs, and it was at this point that Bill, yelling for his wife, began to break free from his restraints. So this forced Keyes back downstairs to further secure Bill. However, a struggle ensued. Keyes told investigators in an audio interview, quote, So, I knew I was going to have to knock him out or just kill him. He saw the gun, and he started to say something, and it just pissed me off, and I just started pulling the trigger. End quote. Yeah, and at this point, it's impossible to say whether Lorraine, still alive upstairs, knew that her husband had been killed. However, we can assume that, even silenced as the gun was, she had to have heard the muted pops and the end of Bill's struggling. It was at this point that Keyes used a knife to remove Lorraine's clothing and assaulted her twice. 
To further give you an idea of how sick the son of a bitch was, he forced Lorraine downstairs to where Bill's body had been left, sat her on a bench, and forced her to look at what he had done. That is so fucked up. I just gotta, I, I gotta say it. That's just... It's incredibly sadistic, the way that he, the, the need he felt, or I, I don't know if it was a need or a desire or some sick fantasy he was playing out where he, he decided that it, he had to show Lorraine, who he'd assaulted twice, her dead husband on the floor. It, it, like, it's it's almost it, it's almost as if he was like it's it's like I don't know he completed a project or something like that. Yeah. It was like he was showing someone, look at what I just did, you know. And it's yeah, you're right. It's absolutely sadistic. So then, like after he showed. Lorraine Bill's body he then strangled her and left the couple in the basement of the abandoned farmhouse the bodies were never recovered from that farmhouse as it was demolished by a construction crew with the debris taken to a landfill when Keyes informed the FBI of the double homicide and the location of the killings the FBI interviewed staff from the construction company who said they had not seen any human remains but several members of the demolition team did recall a strong, foul smell. The FBI made numerous attempts to recover the courier's remains from the landfill over the course of about three months, but to no avail. Investigators felt that Key's confession, his knowledge of the attack at the courier's home and the location of the old farmhouse, coupled with the demolition team's corroborating story of a foul smell, were enough to charge Keyes with the murders of Bill and Lorraine Courier. In July 2012, Chittenden, County Prosecutor T.J. Donovan, made a statement at a press conference informing the public of the latest developments in the disappearance of the couple. He said, quote, Their murders were a random act of violence that occurred in our community. There is nothing the couriers did in their personal lives that contributed to their deaths. End quote. For the family and friends of the couriers, there was finally a bit of closure more of which came later but before we get to that we have to discuss key's third known victim samantha koenig was born august 30th 1993 to parents james and darlene in anchorage alaska samantha was described as quote full of life and had the biggest personality her smile would light up a room and to hear her laugh would brighten anyone's day she had an infectious charm and a brilliant sarcastic wit End quote. Honestly, she sounds like a delightful person. Yeah, she does. Samantha had recently begun working at the Common Grounds coffee stand as a barista, a job which apparently she had very much wanted. The coffee stand was one of many in the area and was located at the intersection of Tudor Road and Fairbanks Street in Anchorage. It was on February 1st, 2012, during the end of a shift when, at around 8 p.m., a man approached the stand. Surveillance footage obtained from the area by the Anchorage Police Department led the APD to quickly conclude that Samantha had been abducted. From FBI case files, quote, Video surveillance from Common Grounds shows a single offender approach the coffee shack, jump through the window, and leave with Koenig. End quote. It was obvious from the footage that Samantha was being held at gunpoint. During the video, she can be seen conversing with the perp, turning away, then turning back toward the man, after which she raises both hands in the air. Given that she hands the perp money, the man had obviously instructed Samantha to empty the register. 
Further surveillance footage showed that the same man had parked near a Home Depot at approximately 1954 or 754 Alaskan Standard Time. Getting out of a white Chevrolet extended cab truck, he then walked in the direction of the Common Ground coffee stand where Samantha was working. Later, surveillance footage from the Home Depot showed Samantha and her abductor approached the Chevrolet where the abductor then got into the passenger side. Samantha climbed into the driver's side and the vehicle pulled away. So there's a lead here in the type of vehicle that the abductor used. Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, was the first to notice that something wasn't right. From FBI Files, quote, He went to the coffee stand on February 1st, 2012, at about 20.33 or 8.33 p.m. to give her a ride home, but the stand appeared to be closed and she was not there. He stated, Everything was closed, that the wooden slides used to block the windows from sliding were in place. He added that there were napkins on the floor, and the towels used to clean were still sitting on the countertop, which he thought was unusual, as Samantha Koenig was very conscientious about being neat, end quote. Twain was late picking Samantha up. He was supposed to have done so at 8 o'clock when her shift ended, but he got caught up with his own job. He tried contacting her by cell a few times, both calling and texting. Twain found the circumstances to be unusual, and his suspicion further increased when he finally received a text message at 2324 or 1124 that read, quote, F you, asshole. I know what you did, and I'm going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think, plan, acting weird, let my dad know. End quote. Dwayne did admit to investigators that he and Samantha had had some issues in the relationship, although they had been doing well recently, to include the day when he was supposed to have picked her up on the 1st of February. Dwayne told investigators he did not believe that Samantha had authored the text based on the texting style used. Dwayne also reported that at 3 in the morning on the 2nd of February, so early hours of the next day, he witnessed a man wearing a mask rifling through Samantha's vehicle, which had been parked at their residence. He came to find out that Samantha's driver's license was missing. Police became aware of the incident the next day when Samantha's employer, who was vacationing in Oregon, reviewed his internet-based security system and saw the event, saw the abduction occur. So here we have this man who's vacationing away on a family trip and ends up checking his security systems to check on his coffee stand. And luckily he had that security system installed. The reason he ended up reviewing the footage was that Dwayne, Samantha's boyfriend, reached out to him and relayed the events of the night prior to her boss. So naturally he went to the footage, finding things a little bit unusual and perhaps feeling something wasn't right. It was Samantha's boss that contacted the police and reported the incident after he reviewed the footage and witnessed the abduction take place. Investigators had little more than that to go off of in the weeks that followed. To add to the obscure chain of events, Samantha's boyfriend Dwayne received a text message from Samantha's phone on February 24th, 23 days after the abduction. The message provided the location of a ransom note. It was to be found in a local park in Anchorage. The text read, quote, Connor Park, signed under pick of Albert, ain't cheap hurdy, end quote. APD rushed to the park and found both Samantha's father and her boyfriend already on location. A Ziploc bag was pinned to a bulletin board below a flyer for a lost dog named Albert. The bag contained a folded piece of paper. From FBI files, quote, 
On one side of the piece of paper, there was a photograph of Samantha Koenig with silver duct tape around her mouth and chin. She appeared to be wearing eyeliner and a light-colored, latex-gloved hand and lightly-complected muscular arm was holding Samantha Koenig's hair. And the upper part of the photo was an Anchorage Daily newspaper determined to be the issue released on Monday, February 13, 2012. End quote. So this was a proof-of-life photo. The back side of the paper contained a ransom note demanding $30,000 along with the 16-digit debit card number belonging to Duane. The author of the note demanded that the $30,000 be deposited in the bank account associated with Duane's card number. Samantha and Duane shared a bank account, and it was obvious that the perpetrator had access to the account via Samantha's own card. The note further stated, quote, I may not use this card much in Alaska due to small population, but as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over, end quote. So here he is kind of uh, taunting or maybe feeling a little bit invincible. Investigators spent the next few weeks searching for any sign of Samantha. Tips came in and police still had little in the way of leads. However, Keyes made an error. He had been using her bank card to withdraw funds at various locations, including Anchorage, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. So this falls in line with what he had indicated in his ransom letter. Investigators knew that the individual in possession of Samantha's bank card had traveled to the continental U.S. and was mobile in the South. Photos of the white Chevrolet were circulated in Alaska and across the southern United States. Texas Highway Patrol Officer Corporal Brian Henry and Texas Ranger Stephen Rayburn spotted a white Chevrolet matching the description of Keyes' vehicle in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe in Lufkin, Texas, on March 13, 2012. Keyes got back on the road and the two officers, going with their gut, followed, later pulling Keyes over for speeding. So they had assumed that this might be the vehicle in question that they had gotten the bolo for, they'd be on the lookout, but they weren't sure. However, upon searching the vehicle, Samantha's ATM card and cell phone were found in Keyes' possession. 34-year-old Israel Keyes was arrested without incident. But what was Keyes doing during the two-week period between February 2nd and February 24th when he led police to the ransom note? As he stated, he'd be traveling quite a bit. Well, Keyes and his family left on February 2nd on a cruise in New Orleans. Yes, Keyes had a girlfriend and a daughter, and he left with them the day after he abducted Samantha to go on a family trip to New Orleans. So what of Samantha during this time? After his arrest, the gruesome answer came to light. Keyes informed investigators that he had raped and killed Samantha the same day he left with his family on their trip on February 2nd. If you hadn't realized it already, the ransom photo included a newspaper dated February 13th. At this point, Samantha had already been killed. So how did that happen? Keyes confessed in interrogation that he had kept Samantha's body frozen while he was away with his family. And upon return, he groomed her corpse and stitched her eyes open, then sat her up to make her appear alive for the proof-of-life photo demanding a ransom. What the actual fuck? That is so, so messed up. Oh my god. I just... This was hard to research, this was hard to read, and it's, it's even harder to say, to be honest with you. 
like she'd already been dead and he had groomed her and stitched her eyes open. I can't even comprehend that. Yeah, she was dead less uh, within less than 24 hours of the abduction. So she was abducted around 8 o'clock that night on February 1st. And um, February 2nd, when Keyes left with his family, she was already dead. But what of Samantha's remains? Keyes provided the location of her remains to investigators. He had dismembered and placed her remains beneath the ice of Matanuska Lake in Anchorage. An FBI forensic dive team recovered her remains from the location Keyes provided on April 2nd. That's as far as I'm going to go into detail regarding his last crime. Uh, honestly, because I can't stomach much more. Keyes was obviously a twisted and unashamed monster. And he deserves exactly what he has coming to him. Which Sam's going to enlighten us on here. So please, let's get into his sentencing and his eventual demise. So basically, the FBI, after he, uh, they had arrested Keyes, had spent seven crucial months interrogating Keyes. During that time, he only cooperated with the FBI to an extent, releasing small clues to previous murders from time to time. But the FBI was making some progress. Keyes knew he wasn't going to get away without a prison sentence, a fact he just could not tolerate. He stated in an audio interview on April 12, 2012, quote, I can't be satisfied sitting in prison for all my life. I'd rather go out while I still have some sanity and good memories. He also chuckled at this, end quote. So what the fuck good memories does he have? That's my thing. And then he laughs about it? Yeah, no, nah, he's I, fucked up. He's uh, obviously talking about all the all the people that he killed. It, it seems that way. I, I, I can't be satisfied sitting in prison for all my life. Son of a bitch, you don't deserve anything less. No, not at all. Um, so, Keyes attempted to make a deal with the investigators. He told them he was able to help them close several cold cases that he was responsible for going so far as to claim that investigators could use his assistance as they had victims listed as missing persons rather than open homicide investigations. In exchange, Keyes requested that his story never make it to the media and that he be quickly executed. No deals were made and Keyes took matters into his own hands. Nine months later, on December 1st, 2012, Keyes committed suicide in his jail cell. He left behind a suicide note filled with odd and strange passages. The FBI hoped that the note would provide some more detail or clues on his previous murders, but it was a little more than a, than just like a psychopathic rant, essentially. He wrote things like, and I quote, You may have been free. You loved loving your lie. Fate had its own scheme. Crushed like a bug, you still die. End quote. At another point, he writes about the, quote, nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass, playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. Lastly, he says also, quote, Land of the free, land of the lie. Land of the scheme, 
American lies, end quote. He, he, he clearly had an issue with society. He clearly had an issue with the United States. I mean, it, it, his, uh, and I hate to call it that, but his poetry here, um, he seemed to be just angry at... Everyone and everything, essentially. Everyone and everything, but just, I don't know. You know but, but it's interesting because he served in the United States Army. Or did he use the military as, as some sort of tool? Was he looking for structure? Because the murders, the, as we'll come to find out, his murders didn't begin, at least as far as we know, until after his discharge from service in 2001. But kill kits had been buried seemingly before 2001. So yeah. all of this is premeditated. It's very yeah. clinical, very clinical, very planned, very meticulous. Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting to kind of speculate whether something like he started to plan all this before his military service and something uh kind of pushed him over the edge after he enlisted or there's I mean there's no telling there's a lot of speculation there but it'd be really interesting to know like what really had finally set him off to start murdering yeah, people absolutely so Dr. Phil Resnick, Director of Forensic Psychiatry at University Hospital's Case Medical Center in Cleveland, told abcnews.com after looking at the note, quote, It's certainly not an ordinary suicide note. He doesn't talk much about his own dilemmas of being in prison or why he's taking his own life. It's more of a final statement of contempt for the American style of life, and I think the other thing he emphasizes is his own superiority that he has a guile and can take advantage of people who are naive and trusting of him, end quote. I can see where Keyes would have felt that way, because honestly, had he not used Samantha Koenig's bank cards and taunted the police as though he wanted to be caught, I'm not sure they would have caught him. There was no evidence, and he had no M.O. I mean, all of his victims were random because what it came down to was proximity to the kill kits that he had buried. Yeah. It was a matter of convenience and whether he felt like it at the time. Right, right. And so Dr. Stephen Montgomery, a forensic psychiatrist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, said the writings show intelligence and a clear understanding that Keyes knows his behavior was wrong. Now, this is very fascinating to me like I know Mike and I had a bit of a chat before we actually started recording this episode that it's interesting to kind of speculate whether Keyes falls under the bracket of being a full-fledged psychopath or a sociopath because Mm. from my understanding a a psychopath it's like a a sociopath it's it's more of a learned behavior psychopath psychopaths don't really have a conscience like at all from my understanding and sociopaths mm. do to a certain extent. But the kind of crimes that he committed and the way that he did them, like, y- you would think that that's really psychopathic behavior. But I don't know. What do you think about that, Mike? It, it's hard to say. You know, um, the, during the research process, and we didn't include uh, any of it really in the script of the episode, uh, we both learned that one of the big things for Keyes and, and what led to his eventual suicide was he did not want to be immortalized. Keyes did not want publicity. He did not want public attention. Uh, he almost seemed ashamed of what he had done, specifically when it came to some of the 
sexual acts that he that he committed uh, in violating his victims. Um, and there were hints of both uh, that occurring when the victims were alive and post-mortem, so some necrophilia there. Um, and Keyes made it clear, and, and I know you heard it as well as I did in some of the oral interviews, where he mentioned that he had a daughter. And he knew that eventually she would find out some of these things about him, uh, but the I think he said the the sex stuff and, and not to quote exactly but pretty close was you know the the sex stuff that getting out and I think he said quote that I mean that's not going to work we're going to have to work something out uh, so he was very ashamed uh, of that and it's also interesting to note that his victims um, when it came to sexually violating them it wasn't just females he did the no. same to males. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, fuck his feelings personally, you know. Mm. Yeah, that that was several occasions like I that I saw, especially in the um, New York Post article. Um, like, I think before he actually killed Bill Carrier, he he actually had intentions of of raping him as well. Mm. But when it got to that point in the interview, and they were asking him about it, he was kind of like, "I don't want to get into that." And right. would just leave it at that. Like, yeah. he was pretty ashamed, like, w- what comes across as ashamed of some of his sexual acts. Or embarrassed. Or embarrassed, yeah. Right, which which then, it, it's not about the victim, it's about him, it's about his ego at that point. Mm, yeah. So, and, and, you know, it's funny that you, you talk about um, Bill Courier. Um, Dwayne, Samantha's boyfriend in the FBI files that I was reading, Turns out that he had actually stalked and watched and considered Dwayne at one point to be a potential victim. Oh, wow. And yes, that was in the FBI files. Yeah, he, he had talked about that during, during the interrogation process. Um, but he, he, he chose to just go after Samantha. So again, we have premeditation. We've got this, this thought process. So we've got linear thought mm-hmm. and we've got someone who's uh, at the forefront of their mind making conscious mm. decisions um yeah he knew exactly what the hell he was doing there, there's definitely elements of um like he definitely has elements of of a conscience and it's not i i i don't like i'm not an expert at all well god no neither of us are <laughs> I, but like i mean as we say at the start of every episode but yeah I just, I don't think I can label Israel Keys as a full-fledged psychopath because of that reason. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it really is. The yeah. fact that he didn't take trophies, that he didn't want to be immortalized, that he took into consideration uh, how the mm-hmm. public would view him when it came to the sex acts, and then his daughter finding out about him. That's, that's very atypical. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that doesn't take into consideration, the, you know, for the fact that his final victim was somebody's daughter. So, uh, fuck you, Keys rotten hell dude so along with the suicide note the fbi found a series of drawings underneath his bed in his jail cell he had drawn he had essentially had drawn a series of 11 human skulls which were all drawn in his own blood the fbi speculated that the skulls indicated the entirety of his crimes but obviously they were unable to confirm this as the fbi only found them until after he died and if I had to, like, listeners can look this image up on Google um, if they're interested to know more. But I'll try and describe it, um, what the drawings looked like. 
Um, they're all pretty simple looking skulls, uh, besides the peculiarity of the fact that on one of the drawings he had written, quote, we are one, end quote, at the bottom of it. There's also one drawing that the FBI didn't mention in this interview, uh, a 12th drawing that was not of a human skull, but what looks to be a goat within a circle which has been identified as a depiction of Baphomet, which is a goat-headed deity that was said to have been worshipped by the Knights Templar. A little bit of mil military history for you. Also written in his blood on one of the walls of his cell was the word Corazel, a city in Belize. We know that Keyes travelled abroad frequently, so perhaps this was the location of another victim. What's interesting, I have noticed, is that this particular drawing looks like it has the most detail compared to the rest. Like he took a lot of care when detailing it, which indicates to me personally that this one was the most important of them all. Yeah, I wonder. I, I wonder if you know we we know about the three victims, but in FBI interviews he hinted at another what seven or eight. But the drawings under his bed totaled out to twelve. So we know about three. He hinted at another eight. That only adds up to eleven. And I have to wonder if he didn't symbolize himself as Baphomet or as one of the drawings because the last life that Keys took was his own. Um, and again, you know that's just speculation, but. Uh, if it wasn't, we have only got three that he was ever really um, credited with. Where are the other nine? Because they're 12 drawings. So Keyes committed suicide, which meant that the rest of his victims were unable to be identified. We will never know what happened to them or even know where they were buried because all we can confirm is that he was responsible for the murder of Bill and Lorraine Currier and Samantha Koenig. I mean, it's it's truly heartbreaking to know, especially for the Curriers and Samantha Koenig's families, that they were never they never received closure and, you know, because he took his own life, Keyes was not punished for his crimes. Although all they can do is take a little just a little bit of comfort in knowing that the sick bastard that took their loved ones away from them is no longer alive. Despite the fact that this fucker deserved more than death, to suffer in his own solitude for the rest of his sorry life in prison against his wishes. Yeah, and aside from that, the one thing that we can do, and it's not about bringing attention to Israel Keys. He, again, he didn't want to be sensationalized, he didn't want to be talked about, he didn't want to be remembered, immortalized for his crimes, but we owe that to the victims. So there we have it. Episode 13, Israel Keys, Soldier, Serial Killer. I gotta ask, uh, Sam, how, how are you feeling? Honestly, like, I, I'm exhausted, like, from all that research. I don't know about you, but that was, that was a lot even to read and to just digest, but also put it into this episode. And it, it's a somber reminder that people like this actually exist mm. and continue to exist and if it wasn't for the fact that he had slipped up either intentionally or not intentionally right like he wouldn't have been caught so no. how many other people are out there that are like him you know so it's yeah how are you uh no that's it, a fair point and uh i'm tired i'll be honest you know outside of work and just the day-to-day -day, uh and and our normal preparation for for our episodes um it was really draining 
I, I like I said, I listen to true crime. Uh, thanks to Zach. So, hey, thanks, brother. But uh, go to hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to put yourself in the shoes of the investigators, to put yourself in the shoes of the victims, and then to put yourself in the shoes of the perpetrator, because you have to, and you have to do it a little bit objectively, and you have to be a little bit unbiased. And I'm not sure that you know that was accomplished quite as well as. Uh, an actual true crime podcast, and uh, I, I hope you know we we did some justice to true crime. Uh, but this is definitely outside of the wheelhouse, and um, I'm looking forward to taking a nice long break from doing an episode like this <laughs> in the near future. Because, uh, yeah, well, we both know how we feel about it, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Keyes, uh, Keyes was and remains a terrifying serial killer, both for his proficiency and his lack of M.O., and that was his M.O. He didn't fucking have one. His murders were truly random, and his ability to leave little to no evidence makes him that much more terrifying. Keyes made it clear that he did not want to be remembered, and to hell with his feelings. However, it's not about Israel Keyes. It's about Bill and Lorraine Courier. It's about Samantha Koenig, and it's about the unknown victims that all deserve to be remembered. And for those unknown, they and their families deserve answers. It should be further noted that as of 2020, the FBI and state investigators have been working to link Keyes to other unsolved missing persons cases by way of tracing his many movements and comparing similar details of unsolved cases with his known cases in hopes of tying him to his other victims. Next week, we will be returning back to what we know, military history. So, for episode 14, tune in for the evacuation of Dunkirk. You definitely do not want to miss this one. Sam will be hosting, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she brings to the podcast. Tune in next Wednesday. We look forward to it. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.